A warm welcome to the Herty School. Herty School. The Herty School. The Herty School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. Understand today, shape tomorrow. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Herty School in Berlin. Good afternoon, everyone. Ladies and gentlemen, dear student, dear guest. So welcome. It is a great honor for me to welcome you today to this uh, first event in the series Debating Fundamental Rights, hosted by the Center for Fundamental Rights here at the Heritage School. My name is uh, Michal oh, my name is Michal Krama and I'm the center manager. In this uh, series Debating Fundamental Rights, we will bring to the Heritage School, we will bring to discussion opposing views on all the new challenges to the protection of fundamental rights. And the debate today focuses on the question whether the right to a dignified existence minimum and the policy of welfare conditionality can go together. In a very recent decision of the German Federal Constitutional Court, the court indeed said that it can, that this is possible. And this was on November 5, three weeks ago. It is a pleasure for me to have to discuss this case and the broader question that raises from this case from social rights, social policy, and fundamental rights protection perspective with the panel today. And I would like to invite the panel member to join me. Um, professor Florian Rodol is a professor for labor law and social security law at the Freie Universität Berlin. Yes, please join me. Um, Anke Hassel, professor of uh, public policy here at the Herty School and Bashak Chale, Professor of International Law at the Heritage School and the Director of the School Center for Fundamental Rights. And before we dive into the discussion and discuss this decision together with you, I want to give you a short background of this case. And I will go back a little bit in history and time, so um, I hope this will be uh, useful. Between uh, 2003 and 2005, Germany uh, had adopted a series of labor market reforms. They are known as the Hartz uh, reform, named after Peter Hartz. He was the head of the Labor uh, Market Reform Commission. And Hartz IV uh, was the fourth stage of this uh, reform. It was primarily an institutional reform under which two different systems, two different support systems for unemployed people and others unable to sustain themselves will merge into one system. This is called Hartz IV. Um, before the reform, unemployed, unemployment benefits were directly based on the less uh, earned salary. After the reform, uh, long-term unemployment benefits were reduced to a standard benefit, which was not based on the earning before entering unemployment. So unemployment benefit, they're now known as Hartsphere, essentially consists of a minimum standard benefit that's supposed to secure uh, one's livelihood. It is paid as a lump sum, and um, in general, with very few exceptions, there's no special payment for uh, special needs. There's no extra payment for uh, special needs. And cutting unemployment uh, benefit to this uh, minimum was intended to, to encourage recipients of social benefit to avoid uh, welfare dependency and to push them into employment, even if this employment is uh, poorly paid. Um, as, any, as, as you can probably imagine, so the Hartz IV reforms led only to uh, public uh, criticism, but also to a wave of lawsuits in social courts. And the question whether uh, this regulation, and in particular whether the amount paid to secure li uh, one's livelihood, the standard payment, is compatible with the protection of the right to live with dignity, uh, came before the German Federal Constitutional Court. And in a very um, landmark decision of the court from 2010, uh, the court recognized that there is a fundamental right to a dignified existence, to a dignified minimum existence. And the court says that this is a right that derives directly from the right to human dignity, and therefore it's an absolute right. It's enjoying absolute protection. The court emphasized that the state carries a positive obligation to protect this right to live with dignity. So the state is obligated to provide the individual, uh, if she is not able to sustain herself, uh, with means that will secure minimum dignified existence. And this includes both means to secure the physical existence and what they called, uh, what the court um, described as a minimum of participation in a political, cultural, and social life. So physical minimum and a sociocultural uh, minimum. And the critic of this uh, Hartz-Fee reform um, concerned, however, not only the amount paid, not only the standard benefit that paid uh, to secure one's livelihood, but also the policy of welfare conditionality that was introduced with the Hartz reform. 
So with addition to, with addition to uh, in addition to introduction and uh, to introducing a minimum uh, standard benefit, the reform adopted the so-called uh, activation measurement uh, to encourage benefit recipients to avoid or to end welfare dependency. So the reform included a mixture of enabling, enabling instruments such as uh, employment and training services and incentive instruments such as work-related sanctions. When uh, refusing to take up a reasonable job or a training opportunity, benefit recipients in Germany are expected to uh, reduce a, a mandatory reduction of their standard benefit by 30%. In case they refuse for a second time, if there is a second refusal to take up an opportunity to work or to take training, there is a reduction of uh, 60% in relation to the basic rate. A third refusal would bring to a complete suspension of the benefit. And now we get to the question of, uh, that we want to discuss here. So um, the question uh, came before the court, and the question was um, whether this scheme of uh, work-related sanction that I just described comply with the obligation uh, of the state to protect the right to live with dignity. And I will now uh, join my uh, panel to... So, do I still need a microphone, or is it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's on. It's on. Okay. <laughs> so I just described this um, question that came before the court. We're talking about the scheme of sanctions, and the question where these scheme of sanctions uh, comply with the obligation of the state uh, to protect the right to live with dignity. And my first question is to you, Florian. So what did actually the court decide on this question? And if you can explain to us very shortly the main reasoning for this uh, decision. Well, um, let me focus on the plain outcome first to get things easier, and then uh, on the main reasoning maybe later. I, there are three points uh, to mention. First, uh, cuts of more than 30% are not constitutional because they are disproportionate. They are disproportionate, this is important, on the basis of what we know about the functioning of the cuts as sanctions. In other words, it is not about proportionality in the narrow sense, which would include a balancing of public ends and individual burdens. This is not the point. It's about the aspects of suitability and necessity in the proportionality test. The proper functioning of the sanctions with regard to their effects on people's behavior are, in view of the court, currently too uncertain to justify a cut of more than 30%. So this is a main point. And further consequences, secondly, uh, cuts of 30% which remain possible must no longer be a mandatory consequence of a breach of obligation. Welfare authority must have and must exercise discretion in order to be able to assess the circumstances of the individual case. And thirdly, cuts must no longer necessarily endure for the whole period of three months, which is now the case. It must be possible for the person, person concerned to get the cut cancelled by fulfilling its obligation afterwards or by seriously promising to do so. Now, it might be interesting to say a few lines about the practical effect uh, we had, do not have clear figures from the Bundesagentur für Arbeit. We know that there are nine, about 900,000 sanctions, cases of sanctioning a year, but more than three quarters of cases are beyond the subject of the judgment because they concern people who simply do not show up at the agency, although they have to. So three quarters are not touched. Um, and from the remaining around 200,000 cases, 200,000 cases, we have about 7,000 cases of full cuts a year in Germany. So, again, these figures, it seems not to be a very big issue. However, the psychological effect that the whole system has might be changed, and that might be essential. But let me point out, as with regard to the reasoning, very clearly. The judgment set new limitations, and they are based on the empirical uncertainty of suitability and necessity of the sanctions. 
the limitations do not, and this is important for our discussion afterwards, from the fact that a cut in the minimum standard of living would always be inappropriate because it resides in human dignity. So the court actually, and this is important, leaves the basic structure of the system of sanctions untouched or the, uh, the conditionality of a welfare state. The meaning of the system is your claim depends on your will to participate actively in improving your employability. And to make this clear, the court states explicitly at the end of its judgment, in principle, the Constitution does not exclude to provide for full cut, a cut of 100% of every benefit under certain circumstances. So the general system is kept intact. Thank you. So um, you just ended your... Um, you end your... Um, commentary with saying we're talking about the um, general system that stay intact so Anka maybe um, you can explain us more what is the general system what is the general system of welfare conditionality <clears throat> so first of all just as a general remark all welfare systems have a system of conditionality um, there's no welfare system where you do have unconditional access to welfare benefits per se so that is true across the world, and it's even more true in those systems where we have uh, rather generous or extensive welfare benefits. So if you look at the Nordic countries, the Nordic countries are based on a system where benefits are comprehensive on the one hand, but at the same time the idea of activation which underlies the whole of the, the, the reasoning of the Hartz reforms, the idea of activation is central also in the Nordic systems, yeah? And the underlying principle is a principle of rights and responsibility, and the idea that the welfare state is there to help people to integrate into the labor market, but it also expects the cooperation of people. If we look at, um, at the system of conditionality, there, there are different layers of conditionalities. I mean, the first layer is really that you have to be eligible in a very general way. You have to be the resident of the country, for instance. Not anyone who travels to Paris tomorrow can go to the Paris, Parisian authorities and say, you know, I, I want to apply for benefits, so you have to be the resident of the country. The second layer is the what you might call the generosity of the benefit system, how it interacts with other benefits, how it interacts with your own assets, whether you have, to, you know, the, the government can take it into account the assets which you own when they calculate benefits, but also what about housing benefits, what about disability benefits. So there's a complicated interaction between different kinds of benefits and the way that is designed also characterizes the degree of conditionality. And the third layer is what we are discussing now, is the um, system of behavioral conditionality. So that the, the, the question whether or not you are entitled to the benefits or whether you are sanctioned or not is dependent on your own behavior, the extent to which you cooperate with the system and with the authorities under the assumption that the authorities are there to help you integrate into the labor market to make you less dependent on the welfare state that you can earn your own income. The Hartz reforms did not introduce conditionality in the system. Conditionality was always part of the system. And uh, if we look back on this more complicated system before the Hartz reforms where you had a system of unemployment insurance. Unemployment insurance is a social right where you earn your entitlements and where you are more free of conditionality because it is in a, you know, it's part of your insurance that you are entitled to these benefits. But then when your insurance benefits run out, you know, you, previously you had other kinds of benefits, social assistance benefits, but also long-term unemployment benefits, which was in, in place before, which was not an insurance-based benefit, but was a tax-funded benefit. Even under that regime, there was conditionality. Even under that regime, the government could ask you to cooperate with a certain behavior, and the behavior was always to accept a job. If a job center offered uh, the long-term unemployed a job and in, in the long-term unemployed 
refused to take on this job even before the government could sanction. And the government could withdraw the benefit completely, both on the social assistance uh, regime, but also in the long-term unemployment uh, regime. So it is not something new, mm -hmm. but it has always existed. Um, if we look at... Or sh shall I stop now? Or, uh, just uh, maybe a final remark on activation policies. Yeah? Activation policies have um, become very prominent during the 1990s, and this in, in the Western European or in the Western world. And this has been uh, the response to a long-term decline of um, employment rates and um, uh, participation rates of uh, uh, workers in the labor market. And this has particularly been true for the male breadwinner. So you had long-term decline in employment rates of, of men. You had an uptake among women, but a long-term decline of men. And that um, phenomenon was... Um, part of the process of economic restructuring when the manufacturing industries declined, the coal and steel industries declined, that people were actively encouraged to leave the labor market, either on uh, early retirement schemes or on long-term unemployment benefit regimes. And there was a clear decision by many European governments to reverse the trend to increase employment rates, to activate people, because they realized the, the system that they had until then was a very costly system, because a lot of people just don't, did not participate in the labor market uh, anymore. So activation was the goal, and activation was then based on a policy regime where you said, we want to be people to be active in the labor market, we want to help them to stay in the labor market, we abolish early, early retirement, for instance, but at the same time, we we expect people to cooperate when we do this. So that was the policy, that was the deal, and I think that is underlying, um, is still today, the, the government's policy. And the Constitutional uh, Court, as Florian has said, has recognized this and has not uh, said this is unconstitutional for the reasons you outlined before. Yeah. Thank you. And. Um yeah, I, I guess I, in my introduction, it was uh, I portrayed in a much more gloomy and maybe mean way uh, the sanction as the unconditionality. I wanted just a follow up on what you just explained about this uh, system of uh, activation, and uh, some describe this as a system of carrot and sticks. And you have written before that carrots, uh, minimum wage, and so on, are actually more efficient and in uh, sticks. Uh, sanctions than what we're now talking about. Um, you still think that sanctions are essential in this system of welfare conditionality? <clears throat> so I, I think in, in the policy regime we are in and in the welfare system we're in, I think sanctions are essential. I would not abolish sanctions um, because it, they are part of a regime of rights and responsibilities and you need the other side to so the rights, you need the responsibility side to that as well. So I would stick with the sanctions. I think there are other things wrong with the system, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, there, there are a lot of things wrong with uh, the Hartz reforms which have uh, little to do with sanctions. You know, the, the, I think the, a key problem of uh, the Hartz reforms is the um, definition of the ability to work. There are a lot of people who are uh, recipients of um, the Hartz benefits who are not really able to work, yeah? who have multiple problems, you know, either health issues, mental health issues, uh, drug-related issues, and other issues, who are at the same time forced to participate into the system and are sort of subject of being activated even though it is very hard for them to be activated or, you know, even impossible. And that is, um, you know, the, the fact that we have almost a million sanctions a year and 77% of those only have to do with people not uh, uh, going to appointments has to do that a lot of these people, you know, are not in a position to do so and are not, you know, are people who either don't open their mail or are not really, you know, their world is not focused around how to get a job, but they have, they have really other issues. So the ability to work, the, the definition of the ability to work is a key problem in the system. Yes. The other problem in the system is has to do with the low-wage employment in Germany. Germany has a very, uh, very big low-wage sector. It is far above uh, other Western European countries with the exception of uh, the UK which means that at the bottom end of the labor markets, wages are just very low. And for many people, in particular people with uh, children, it is very hard to earn a living above 
the benefit level on the labor market because they, you know, because the wage they are expected to receive is too low. So you have to give an, a reason for someone to go out and work. And if um, if you cannot promise them that they actually earn a wage which is higher than the benefit level, it is very hard to motivate people. So there is a motivational problem, and I would uh, say, you know, that there is a an area where you can do something in or you know by um, diminishing the low wage segment in the German labor market, which would be a better way. There's also a better way by um, being more, you know, if we talk about carrots and sticks, by actually thinking about the carrots and thinking about other incentives for people to um, become active on the labor market, that you um, give them prospects for further training, but training in a sort of positive way and not training as a penalty or training as a measure which is not uh, where it's not clear what the purpose of this training is. So I think there, you know, the, the the job centers could do more in order to give a positive way back into the labor market, other than sanctioning. But in the context of you know sanctioning is also part of the system. Okay, um, it's just maybe it's an it's maybe it's important to note, and it, please correct me if I'm wrong, that the um, large part large part of recipients of the hard sphere are actually employed. They're not unemployed, I think, if I'm correct. No, it's not, no, it's not a hard part. So half, half of the hard sphere recipient, we, ha we have about four and a half million people who mm -hmm. receive hard sphere. About half of them are unemployed. Half, okay. The other half is, that, that doesn't mean that the other half is employed. <laughs> you know, the, of the other half, you have about a third of people who are in training measures, okay. a third of people who are unable to work, who, and, uh, you know, and you have a, a certain segment who are in employment, but it's, it's about 15%, I think. So it's not the majority of people who are. Thank you. Um, I want to go back to the decision and to the debate question here, the right to existence minimum, uh, to minimum, to dignified existence minimum and the welfare conditionality, and to the reasoning that the court put here. So in previous decision, I mentioned that the federal constitutional court adopted the assertion that the right to a dignified existence minimum is an absolute right. Um, in other decision, it was also emphasized that it's a universal right, is granted to every person with no condition attached to it. In other previous decision, the court also, the federal constitutional court said that um, the started benefit that, uh, that is granted is a, a quantification of the right to existence minimum. So standard benefit is a quantification of unconditioned uh, protected minimum existence. And my question is to you, Bashak. So now the court says that conditions, sanctions, can be in principle constitutional. So is the federal constitutional court here squaring the circle? How, how does two things go together? Um, thank you. Thank you, Mihal. I'll just give the answer and then maybe give my reasoning after that. <laughs> um, I, I don't think in the in the reasoning of the court um, these two things can go together. I think there is a bit of a logical uh, problem in the in the court's um, court's decision. Uh, what are the reasons for this? So the the notion of an absolute right is a very particular fundamental rights construction, and we have very few absolute rights in constitutional law or in international human rights law precisely for that reason. So a fundamental uh, right which is absolute means that uh, the right um, cannot be subject to proportionality or uh, subject to balancing in the light of other considerations, uh, because those rights will be called qualified rights. So the, the rights that are can be subject to uh, some sort of a weighing in relation to other things. And the second uh, aspect of an absolute right is that it's a non-derogable right. So you cannot derogate from it even in the face of um, austerity measures, um, states of emergency, economic crisis, and things like that. So it's a very high threshold to call something an absolute right. Now, the German Constitutional Court has said that in 2010 in relation to uh, right to live with dignity or the means to live a life uh, with dignity was an absolute right. Once you put something in that box, it becomes rationally difficult to say that sanctions that would affect that right uh, are, are okay. So um, we, we were just saying that Anki was saying, I think the sanctions system is a very important part of the welfare state, in particular in Western Europe. 
I'd like to separate that statement from what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that you cannot have an absolute right and then say that you can eat some parts away from that right once you made that recognition. So in the very latest judgment, um, the court says both. So the court says this is an absolute right, <clears throat> but it says that the, that the absolute right under certain conditions that Florian highlighted earlier on can be subject to a proportionality analysis. Now, you can't have your cake and eat it. You can't have both of these statements, I would say, in a fundamental rights um, construction. But maybe I'll stop there. So, so maybe I want to hear your opinion on this, uh, Florian. So some commentators um, said um, after this uh, decision that um, the the court is undermining the absolute right to dignified existence minimum and maybe undermining the right to human dignity in general. Others said this is a misunderstanding about the uh, about this decision. Um, Bashak said both things cannot go together. What what is your opinion? Is is the court opening here the door to um, to understanding of the right to a dignified existence as a relative right? Do we still have an absolute right to uh, human dignity? Yeah, Bajak seems to say the court may have gone too far in the 2010 decision and the 2012 decision. And Anke, before the discussion started, said the court was faced with reality and then he reacted. And the outcome is, as I may add as a lawyer, is a radical uh, incoherence. But I would like to follow further the path of the lawyer and not of the political scientist and say this has created serious uh, problems, uh, several serious problems. Um, the starting point was many observers said before, as we are, it's really the same position as we are now, how can the court, having said this in 2010 and in further decisions in 12 and 14, having anchored the minimum standard of living in human dignity, how can he ever explain that sanctions are justified. And uh, one must say it very clearly, the court wasn't able to do so. He wasn't able to present a coherent, a coherent ratification, a, a justification for this. It repeated also in this statement, he didn't correct his further judgment and say, oh, this was too far or too high to say that's an absolute right. No, to the opposite. It stressed that the claim for the minimum standard of Lingard anchors in human dignity. And it stressed that the person concerned has not, in moral terms, to deserve the benefits, and also that no public interest can justify a cut. That's what he repeated at the first part. And yet, as a result, cut shall nevertheless be possible. How did the court arrive? At that point, to put it drastically, the court left human dignity standing exactly in margin number 132. Margin number 132. At this point, the standard of review is simply exchanged. The obligations and sanctions are no longer measured against Article 1, but only against Article 2 of the basic law, and that is much easier. Under Article 2, interference and violation are separate, and interferences can be justified, and then they are constitutional. And in the case of the sanctions, of course, not all sanctions can be justified, but some can. <coughs> Such obvious incoherence is, in my view, not only slightly embarrassing for the Constitutional Court, at least in particular for the German Federal Constitutional Court. But this is not too important for us today. It is more important that this incoherence has raised a legitimate concern. The concern relates to the question of whether the Federal Court has not implicitly called into question the inviolability of human dignity. And the Court is indeed reasonable for that discussion now emerging, and there's nothing to laugh about it because we should be aware of the fact that there are also voices that promote, indeed, a degradation of human dignity, and they will be able to point to this judgment in the future, also in other contexts. 
maybe rescue, torture, and other nice ideas. That is why, in my view, all of us, or at least all lawyers, who are concerned about the inviolability of human dignity must urgently look for ways of reformulating the ratio of the judgment without putting inviolability of human dignity to disposal. And I would like to make a proposal for this, and I would put it on the table for discussion now. But just to clarify, Michal, I think we can't say that the court is misunderstood. The court messed it up. There's no way to misunderstand it. Now, and now, from now on, I start supporting what Anke was saying. <laughs> it must be kept clear that the claim to the minimum standard of living is in principle not unconditional. This distinguishes the claim from other fundamental rights. Everyone has a right to freedom of expression unconditionally. But not everyone has a claim to a minimum standard of living. Only everyone who is in need has this claim. This requirement of neediness is not an interference with human dignity. The right to human dignity includes no more than a claim to the minimum standard of living in case of need. So the regulations of sanctions which the court examined as restrictions of the freedom of action are thus to be read actually as rules to determine whether the claimant is in need or not. And with this move, we have to move our attention from sanctions to obligations. The obligations have not to prove to be in line with proportionality, but they have to prove to be appropriate as rules to determine neediness. So, in my view, appropriateness can indeed be asserted for at least some of the obligations. Now, Anke said there are a second and a third layer, and I would like, from a legal or constitutional point of view, they are the same. Let me elaborate this. Think of the case where someone has nothing but an unused but valuable piece of land. If this person claims the minimum standard of living from the state, he will be told, you must sell your land first. And if he answers, oh, I don't want that, that won't help him. He doesn't get any benefits as long as he doesn't sell his land because he's not in need. The relevant point now, the relevant moral point, is that need does not only depend on not having larger assets, your second layer, but also from the third layer, need also depends on whether you could turn your general capacity to act into money through employment. Realizable assets and realizable capacity to act count as equal from a moral point of view. So if someone has nothing but could be employed as a, let's say, lawyer, he will be told, you must work as a lawyer. And if he answers, I don't want that, that won't help. He doesn't get any benefits because he is not in need. And this is the moral point of view of the law, I think, of the law of the welfare state. Why? I know, I'm aware of the fact that some find this equation of assets and capacity not convincing. Some might even find it obnoxious. In one, you just sell your land. But in another case, you have to work something that you don't want to do. But in my view, it's by no means arbitrary. We, it's very well justifiable. Because, and this has to do with, what, with the moral grounding of uh, welfare benefits. The welfare state of the civil society is not well advised to spend minimum benefits. He has, it has the moral duty to support the poor, the needy. He has this duty because poverty and neediness is in some sense the structural consequence of civil society. For the Germans, I have to say, civil society is not Zivilgesellschaft, it's Bürgerliche Gesellschaft, but it's not translatable in English because bourgeois society is something different. For civil society, it goes hand in hand with an infinite accumulation of wealth. And this infinite accumulation is simply the other side of neediness. This is a structural condition for neediness. And therefore, neediness, not in the individual case of person A or B or C, but as a structural phenomenon, 
is the responsibility of the civil state for which it has to stand up morally with the means of the welfare state. But only those are in need who cannot secure their dignified existence according to the rules of civil society. Those who, on the other hand, simply do not want to secure the dignified existence according to the rules of civil society are not in need. All they lack is the will to play according to the rules. In contrast to neediness or poverty as a structural phenomenon, individual will is not the responsibility of civil society. And that is why the welfare state does not necessarily have to stand up for it. Of course, one can wish for a welfare state that goes beyond this moral duty, for a welfare state that leaves behind the logic of civil society and its harshness and constraints. But we should remain clear, it is certainly not something which is required by human dignity in the sense of Article 1 of the basic law. So in my opinion, some of the obligations can indeed be justified as rules to determine neediness, such as the obligation to take up employment offered, the very easy case. On the basis of this justification, the absolute status of human dignity would not have become doubtful. However, last remark against this background of justification which leaves human dignity untouched, one has to look more closely which of the further obligations which are provided in the law are actually appropriate to determine neediness. And I think this is not true for all of them. But maybe we come on this back later or not. Let's see. <laughs> yeah, we don't have a lot of time. I just want to, before I uh, open the floor to your question and comments, I want to um, ask another. Qu I want to ask uh, Bashak one more question. Um, Florian gave here a justification of the welfare state, but also a hard criticism of this uh, decision. And uh, maybe to balance this, I want to talk a little bit about or ask you about justiciability here. Uh, justiciability of the question that was referred to this to the court. Because um, as, as Anka, uh, said, Anka said before, the, uh, promoting the return of recipients of social benefits to employment through these uh, policies of welfare conditionality is not uh, unique to Germany. It's uh, quite uh, common among uh, um, Western European states. But it seems that judicial review of such policy and of the means to for protection for social rights is quite uh, unique uh, to Germany. So I want to ask you about other courts. How did other courts uh, face similar question if they did? And maybe shortly, so we will have some time. <laughs> I'm just thinking about your proposal still. And, uh, I don't know. I still don't think we can have these things all together. Um, well, well, maybe... Uh, it's very hard to leave dignity untouched, even under those circumstances, I think. But let's get to other courts. I mean, I've really struggled making sense of um, this judgment in the light of comparative fundamental rights um, knowledge that we have about adjudication of social rights. Now, on the one hand, Germany is an incredibly important country, in particular because of the 2010 decision and then the 2012 decision, because those decisions really made fundamental social rights justiciable so that the courts were able to interfere in the policy making of the legislature and they also made them enforceable uh, because obviously declaring something unconstitutional is a pretty incredible outcome from the perspective um, of the individual. Um, so this court is a very famous, very important court. It's an avant-garde court. I, I mean, you know, it's in every study you would say and the German constitutional courts, 2010 and the 2012. These are incredibly important things. So other courts in Europe, including the European Social Charter Committee, so not courts but international organizations, have always looked up to the German constitutional court's construction and its use of Article 1 and the notion of human dignity to make social rights justiciable. Uh, so there's quite a lot of reference making to this court. Uh, so this is a court where it has actually taught others about how to make uh, fundamental social rights, not the welfare state's ordinary rights, but the fundamental aspects of social rights justiciable. Uh, so it's a very important court. We have to acknowledge what, what, what it has done. Um, and it has really clarified how you make this right justiciable, but using this absolute right construction. So, and I think that was the power of 
its success. One very important thing about the German constitutional court's way of making this absolute was saying that this is absolute, but I'm not going to decide what's in the right. So the court doesn't say how much you have to pay to X. And it said, this is the job of the legislature, but I'm only going to tell you when it's evidently insufficient. You know, so the court says, the only thing I can say is if something is incredibly clearly insufficient, but other than that, the legislature has a massive leeway. And this is a very important lesson for um, dialogue between democratic decision makers and courts as well. So incredible, I think, achievement here. Now, if you take this judgment, and I think this model has been learned uh, in other places, perhaps two uh, final points. One is that in other countries, the adjudication of fundamental social rights really go down to physical, horrendous conditions of um, undocumented migrants, asylum seekers, uh, taking away huge benefits from the old aged persons, um, exclusion of Roma uh, from the benefit structures. There are all sorts of incredibly severe violations. So people have taken the German Constitutional Court example in places where the welfare state is a lot worse than the German welfare state. So other countries' basis is much worse than Germany. But this case law then is incredibly empowering. Dignity is incredibly empowering when you have a horrendous welfare state uh, arrangement. But now <laughs> this judgment is a little different because uh, it has eaten away from the notion of dignity. And uh, it, it sort of says that uh, and this is the one euro par paragraph, I don't know the number of the paragraph, if you get sanctioned for 30% of, of your benefits, you get your clothing, you get your electricity, housing and health, and then you have, I think, about one euro left a day, and the Constitutional Court says that's pretty bad, that you have a euro a day to live a life with dignity, with economic, social, cultural, and other things. But it says... But as long as this gets you back into the job market in the future, it's okay because your future dignity is going to be protected with your one euro a day for a short period of time. Now, this reasoning, if it travels uh, outside of Germany to places where the welfare state arrangements are incredibly harsh and a lot more severe than what is in Germany, this is not going to be, um, I think, a good example making. So I would hope that people will get inspired by the 2010 groundbreaking judgment and maybe not the 2019 version of it um, because this won't advance any arguments outside of the German context if people think that human dignity is, is a negotiable concept in a horrendous um, uh, welfare state with serious discriminatory um, policies. We have... <laughs> So don't publish anything in English now. Um, we have a few more minutes, um, and I can open the floor to questions or comments from your side, if there are any. Yes, maybe. Oh, thank you. Well, thanks you. Thank, thanks to all of you uh, for this very interesting talk. Uh, learning a lot here, and uh, I'm just wondering. So. <clears throat> Classically, this uh, entitlements or the the entitlement to 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 have uh, a minimum uh, condition of living is anchored in what? So here we see that the problematic is that it is said to be anchored in human dignity. Was there another way within the German domestic uh, system to make this right without touching human dignity? You mean to give a, a different grounding for it? Um, I, I can't see that there's an alternative. I mean, this, this idea of uh, welfare benefit, benefits as a social right in the form which is provided by uh, the structure of the rule of law is the breakthrough, breakthrough against the idea that welfare is not welfare but is this... Uh, police uh, measures to keep people down, so you give something without, so they don't make revolution. Um, 
but in 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 uh, in the framework of the German constitution, one has to be very clear that, uh, to put it extensively, it's not Article One which carries the right on its own, but it needs Article Twenty. Article Twenty, where it said this is a social state, so it's not only a republic which has the idea of the common good, but it's also a social state which provides for uh, a minimum. And the minimum, because, <laughs> and then that is, um, uh, gets, goes together with this fundamental idea of human dignity. And both the red together lead to the idea that there is a claim residing in the right to human dignity against the authority to get this minimum standard. And I think to this idea, there's, there's no conceptual or doctrinal alternative, I think, inside the constitutional frame. Otherwise, you return to the idea that these are only police measures. Anke, you wanted to add? <clears throat> Not to this question, but I want to comment on, on Florian's pro proposal, which I, which I like very much as a sort of not a lawyer, just the, the policy implications and the, the way of thinking about the concept of, of neediness in, in the wider context of a dignified life. Um, I think that's true. And I think if we look at the case, it is also true because um, this was a warehouse worker who, you know, decided, uh, who was offered a job in a warehouse and decided, I don't want to work in a warehouse anymore, I want to work in sales. And then, um, you know, was sanctioned first and then they sort of gave him a training opportunity in sales and then he said, you know, I don't really want to do that and he was sanctioned twice and then he went to court. And I think if we look at the case and, and the neediness, the, the question does arise, you know, what is the need of this young and I assume able-bodied man? You know, there's no information in, in the court, you know, that there were other reasons why he did not want to take the job or he did not want to take the training opportunity. Um, so why, what is the need of this person? And, you know, and I think to, to look at it this way also gives us, you know, the opportunity to discuss all the other cases of people who have needs and who cannot, re and these needs are not catered for in the current systems. And, and that is the need of people who are handicapped and have, you know, a lot of other issues in their lives and have needs and have stronger needs who are also not catered for at the moment. And as I um, understand the also the legal side of, of the German welfare system, this is always based on the individual need. If you, you know, it's a very complicated system, you know, what kind of benefits you can receive always depends on the, on your personal circumstances and that, um, and that is the, the right way to look at it. So, you know, I, I would support this way of arguing, arguing, even though I know, you know, the, obviously the, the in the political debate, you know, the, the more, you know, conservative right-wing way to look at it, they would love your arguments and the employers would love your arguments because they said, finally, someone can sort of justify the sanctions in a very elegant way, <laughs> which we couldn't do before. You know, for them, this would be, you know, <laughs> ammunition in, in their way to discuss this. And they say, you know, now the sanctions are, you know, firmly in place, you know, if we follow Florian Rull. Yeah, but only if we look at the sanctions, not if we look at the kind of obligation that you know, we are uh, giving to these, uh, those who are, to, to, to the claimants. Because uh, I, I haven't talked about this for the reason of time constraints, constraints but only this clear-cut case you don't want you. I have a job offer for you, and you don't accept because you don't like it. This is a clear case, and I think no reform, even if socialism breaks through in the next elections, th this won't go through, um, even for political reasons. Um, but be, be beyond that very clear case, we have to be very careful. Take the case of writing 30 applications a month. And if you write only 25, you are sanctioned. This is a paradigmatic case happening every day, or not every day, not so often, but often enough. And there you can't argue that if you had written five more applications, that had, would have brought you into the job. This is simply nonsense. But this is how the functioning, the sanctioning works. And this is why many people and observers think the system is so, uh, um, so um, morally corrupt and that this is so bad and so harmful and so inhuman. And I think if we would accept, adopt this perspective in the further process of law reform, 
employers would realize that my line of argument is not as well suited for their interests than they might see at the first place. <laughs> Could, Could I say something add? positive about the judgment? <laughs> I haven't said much, anything, just, just a one line. Actually, what I do like about this judgment from a fundamental rights perspective is that, uh, you know, if not a very needy man, an able needy man's case was taken up. I think, for me, that was a very important part of the judgment, that the 60% sanction against him, that he didn't want the job, the other one was an unpaid internship that he refused the sales internship was something else, and that this was taken up and that the 60% sanction was declared unconstitutional. That is the bit, actually, I do like about that. I, the vulnerability analysis has a lot of uh, importance in fundamental rights argumentation, but it, it is kind of problematic about if you start to raise vulnerabilities, and it's, it's a very difficult to, I think, judge and assess, and it moves away from the equal protection uh, of... Um, of a minimum uh, protections for all, but but I do like the judgment that he was a very able man, um, and the sanctions were discussed at least at the sixty percent level. Let's take to three maybe comments together or questions. Yeah. Uh, very quickly, I, I wanted to go back to uh, something that Florence said in the beginning, and that's just a question of curiosity about. Um, the, pro the structure of the proportionality test. So you said that basically the court did not um, come to the balancing phase of the proportionality test, that it was just about um, suitability and necessity. But I was just curious to ask uh, what was actually the aim? How was the aim of the state interference characterized? So was it actually the um, uh, cooperation of that particular individual in order to find a job? Um, because if that was the case, then I was wondering if it would make sense for the court to uh, enter the balancing phase, because that would address something that Anka said, which is the, the capacity or the, the ability, as you said, of the individual to actually, the burden that would be imposed on the individual, so that the, the balancing would bring a little bit more clarity uh, to, to the reasoning. Maybe we should take the three comments together and uh, then have um, a final round of uh, answers. Thank you. Um, I would maybe come back to the first thing you said about stick and carrot and to what extent sanctions do really work. I mean, there are many studies that say sanctions are not as effective. And from my perception, there's an issue of the type of measurements that the job center is doing in terms of there are seminars, preparation seminars, which are described very pointless, not very effective. They don't lift the people into jobs, actually. And then you put sanctions for not attending these seminars. So to what extent do you think there might be a structural problem on how we approach the whole idea? And um, my second point was on the recent proposal of the Ministry um, of Francisca Giffey um, on child um, benefits, because my understanding there's also a big problem of child poverty, childs growing up in um, hard sphere households, and um, in my understanding, she tried to propose a more progressive system which allows also maybe like orientation on this needy system, ch childs in need to give more of a child benefit. And I was thinking maybe there could also be a way to put a more progressive system in place here to help these people who are in need. Yeah. There was another. Yeah, and uh, uh, just a very brief question. I would like to uh, hear what you think of the news, which was, I think, just to, uh, in this morning that uh, the, the Bundesagentur and the Ministry of uh, Labor um, are preparing uh, an, a new regulation which is supposed to take uh, the court's decision into account um, but will allow more than 30% sanctions again. Thank you. So maybe um, I will let each of you give a short answer. Please pick and choose your favorite question and because uh, we actually ran out of time but one uh, round of yeah, the court said in its judgment that the empirical evidence wasn't quite there or wasn't sufficient to make a clear statement whether sanctions work or not. And But what we know about the empirical evidence, and there are some studies which were carried out by the 
Institute of Employment Research in Nuremberg, which showed that um, sanctions work in the sense that more people get into employment after they've been sanctioned. But there are only two, two studies of that. And they, the court said this is really not sufficient because it also didn't check, you know, at what, what were the employment conditions, what were the wages, you know, what, what was the um, employment uh, trajectory after they'd, they'd taken up these jobs. So the court, and it also cited other, um, other studies which showed that how people suffered from sanctions. You know, they, they reported, you know, what was the effect on sanctions and um, on them. So the, so the court was ambivalent in, in terms of the empirical evidence. I think uh, given the, the fact that the court said that, there will probably be more empirical evidence now. I think there will be more studies that look at sanctions more closely and um, will establish a firmer empirical base to what extent sanctions work. With regard to um, child benefits and the um, the whole idea of having a sort of um, a more secure access for children to to benefits, I I know um, the discussion around it. I'm not absolutely convinced to what extent you can actually uh, distinguish between the welfare of children and the welfare of parents because I you know it, it, we. You know, children grow up with their parents, and if the parents are poor, you cannot make the children rich. You know, and not make the parents rich. You know, it does not work like that. It, uh, so while the idea is right that you know children in poor households um, are negatively affected, I think the the um, the solution still must be to bring parents in employment and to increase the income of the parents, not necessarily the children. So it's a sort of circumvention of the real problem, and I'm not absolutely convinced that this is um, the right approach. Um, the, the, the final question about the, the proposal this morning, or the, the news coverage this morning, that the uh, ministry prepares a law <laughs> which allows for more than 30% sanction, the ministry has since made a statement and said they are not planning that. So they immediately reacted and said, you know, we're not going uh, this way, so this seems to be off the table. I may, for reason of time constraints, I restrict myself on uh, this uh, question regarding the structure of the proportionality tests in a way. And you have also pointed, you have also asked what is the public interest here, at least as I would like to um, take up the question because it <laughs> helps my <laughs> um, intentions. Uh, I already explained why article the, uh, the, the test under Article 2 is completely misplaced from the outset because if it's about neediness as a prerequisite for Article 1 claim, then it doesn't restrict your freedom to act if I ask whether you're in need or not. But this proportionality test, and you're rightly pointing to this issue, uh, creates further problems because what was, if we start with the proportionality test, we have to uh, uh, say what is the public interest which is served in that case. And the court seems to say at one point that the limitation of benefits to those in need is itself a public interest. And this is complete nonsense. Oh, this is a prerequisite for the claim, which is implied by the content of the moral duty to be fulfilled by the state. So it, it, it's, it's not a common good. It's, it's a, from the logic of the moral duty, the prerequisite of the claim. Later on, only one margin number later, 140 at the end, the court seems to say that behind this prerequisite of need, tested by this sanctioning, stands the public interest of saving public funds. And this is outrageous. Again, the claim to the minimum standard of living derived from a moral duty of civil society. We may dispute how far this duty reaches. But one thing must be very clear. One cannot restrict the moral duty by pointing out that it would be too expensive. Bashak, do you want to add your final statement <laughs> after this? <laughs> Not, not a final statement, but what, the way that I have read um, a translated version of the judgment, so the, the original is in German, of course, um, uh, one of the legitimate aims is also to enable a person to take responsibility um, for their own lives and to support themselves in the future. So this is something that they say, you know, the, the, this aim 
enables to say that sanctions can, you know, you can't say that you can't have sanctions because the sanctions have this, this aim of enabling you to be welfare independent um, in the future. And that's balanced in relation to your lack of having enough or having a euro a day that there is, uh, you know, that one can balance out the other one if it is not mandatory and if it's for a short term and if it's quickly reversible once you change course. So that's, I think, what, uh, what I've understood. Thank you. We um, have to finish, so uh, thank you for joining us today. Please join me in thanking the panel members. Have a good day. Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at hurdy-school.org.